Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Hope all is good with you and yours wherever in the world you might be today. As ever, thank you very much indeed for being here and thank you for listening. It's hugely appreciated. This is what I like to call the quiet time. It might sound poetic, a chance to stop and reflect and take stock and look at where we are as individuals, as a collective. No, I mean that there is a natural lull at the end of the season, after the Champions League final, and before all the transfer stuff starts to really get going. It's a bit like when you see a roller coaster going, you know, up the up the way. It's slow, 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 slow. And then it gets to the top, and then it goes, and everyone's ah, screaming. That is what is going to happen at some point. But we're in the we're in the bit before the roller coaster even starts going slow, slow up the way, which isn't great if you are a hashtag content creator or you're trying to make podcasts for people. But fear not, we do have a show for you today. There are a few bits and pieces that we can talk about. A reported departure. That shouldn't be any surprise to anybody, and that might uh, merit some discussion. There was that brilliant thread during the week which really highlighted how far the Premier League is moving away from all the other European leagues on a financial basis and what that might mean. Uh, Some transfer links with uh, another Manchester City player, apart from Gabriel Jesus, and more. So we will do all that, but you might have seen earlier today, Thursday yesterday when you're listening to this, but Lewis Ambrose did a tactical review of the season from an Arsenal perspective, obviously, and I think there are some interesting aspects to that. So I wanted to talk to him about that. We'll talk to him about those things, and we'll talk to him about the other bits and pieces I mentioned as well. So let's get on with it. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? How are you enjoying not watching football? It's pretty good, I got to tell you. I had my (laughs) fill of football last season. I felt like it took me to some highs and some lows, and now I'm having some some downtime, Um, doing a lot of cooking on the barbecue, not thinking about football, that kind of stuff. What about you? Very nice. Um, I don't know. What what have I been up to this week? It's all, I don't know. The the week sort of rushed by quite quickly, actually. It was last week. Last week was obviously the Champions League final, um, and before that was was my birthday. I had a few days off for my birthday, and very quickly forgot about the end of the season. Yeah. So this week's just sort of flown by, I guess, uh, a little bit. So yeah, not too bad. All right. Well, belated birthday greetings to you. Hope Thank you. Had you. A, hope you had a good time. Now you did write an article for the website uh, as you do, and this is a a tactical review of of the season. 
which I think is quite interesting. We'll look back on uh, a couple of the bits and pieces, but I just wanted to touch on one little bit in it because I think if people read it, and there is, of course, um, a link in the show notes for people to go and do exactly that. But one of the things that you said was, we can look back and as good as throw the first three games of the season out of the window, which I understand, but just in case anybody you know, says, well, you can't just throw three games away. Those three games are important. That's nine points. What you're, what you're, you're not saying that those games aren't important, but when you look at the lineups in those games, I just had a look back at the Man City game. Our defensive lineup that day was Cedric, Chambers, Holding, Kalasinac, and Tierney. And... Look, I know we exacerbated the problem with the Granite Shack ascending off and what have you. But when and, you... and by the by the way, with, with Martin Odegaard in front of them with Granite Shaka, not mm. Thomas Party, not Mohamed El Nene, not even uh Zambi Lukonga, but Martin Odegaard played alongside Granite Shaka in front of that back five. And his first game of the season as well, wasn't it? After yeah, he'd he yeah. just signed. So, you know, when you look back then, Callum Chambers made no Premier League appearances for Arsenal after that point. Said Kalasinac made one Premier League appearance, but it lasted 60 seconds. He came on at the end of the game <laughs> against uh, Leicester. Pablo Marie, who wasn't even in the team that day, he played against uh, Chelsea, never played another Premier League game for the club. And even Nicolas Pepe, uh, who was on the bench, um, he wasn't in the, the squad for the Man City game, but was in the in the squad he, for the he, previous he game. He started against Brentford and against Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. He only had three starts for the rest of the season, and the last start that Pepe had in the Premier League was uh, the 2-2 draw against Crystal Palace in October. So there was a real, uh, this is no surprise to anybody, but there was like a huge shift in personnel after those three games. Yeah, and Burnt Leno played all three of those yeah. games as well. And, you know, I think probably to varying degrees, those players were useless to Arsenal or useful to Arsenal. Um, but Burnt Leno played all three of those games. And, and as we know, obviously played one Premier League game, mm. I think after that at Aston Villa between then and the end of the season. So from September until May, uh, we're talking about, yeah, the, the games, you can't throw the games, you can't throw the results out the window, I would say. And, mm. um, you know, when you look back at the season, they happened, we got no points, and that's the reason that we're not in the Champions League, which, yeah, I think there are you know, mitigating circumstances with the opening game, especially in the coronavirus cases that, that happened and decimated mm. an already thin team. It, there are lessons to be learned for... The management, um, I mean, specifically Edu, in his role, making sure that a team is ready, a squad is ready for the start of the season and not for the end of the transfer window. Because there are three or four games that you're going to play every season before the transfer window closes. And it could be costly. It could, you you could be, I mean, we're lucky nowadays you don't have to qualify. If you you do finish fourth, you don't even have to play the qualifying games of the Champions League anymore. You go straight into the group stage. But old or late transfer window business a few years ago, it would have cost us a place in the Champions League group if we were playing a mm. mix of a team. You know, and as we saw this season, it leaves you bottom of the league and playing catch-up. Spurs played badly in their first three games of the season, but got nine points, I think, looking back. So it is costly. You can't throw the games and the results out the window. But the, yeah, the point of the piece, I guess, was to talk about how good are Arsenal and what what does an Arsenal team look like? What did an Arsenal team look like in 2021-22? In and if you're trying to look at what Arsenal are and where Arsenal are now looking back over the season, then I think you just have to say 
well, those games aren't Arsenal. Um, they aren't Mikel Arteta's Arsenal. They aren't, they aren't representative in any way for the way that we played and the way we wanted to play and the players that played for the rest of the season. So I guess that's what I meant. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I know you understood that, but just for anyone else, before, before people come at me with pitchforks yeah. for, for declaring those games as games that don't count, I guess it's the same, you know, if you, if you were to ask, I guess, Spurs fans, you know, what, how good are Tottenham now? Well, they sort of they would ignore every game that they played under um, Nuno Espirito Santo because mm. major things changed and, and the manager and the way the team play and everything after that managerial change. So I guess that's the question. The question I was trying to answer is sort of how did Arsenal change over the course of the season and where does that leave us now? And for answering that second part of that question in particular, the, the three games don't really tell us anything. I mean, do they tell us that they looked at that start to the season and thought, okay, we've got business to do. Chances are we're not going to get the results against Man City and Chelsea, but you never know. But if we can beat Brentford on the opening day, that's probably an all right, um, you know, it gives us a little bit of consolation. We'll wait and do our business that way. It feels like there have been some calculated risks taken and... um, you know, I know we all look at the end of the season and we think about the Newcastle game and we think about um, you know what where where it went wrong there, and you could just as easily point to any of the any of the other games during the season, at least towards the end of the season. The, the mitigation, if you want to call it, that was a squad that was running on empty that had players out there who weren't fit properly. Anyway, we were missing some key individuals, whereas the first three games of the season feel like lack of preparation or the club, uh, the manager, the technical director, whatever it is, being willing to take a sort of a gamble as they did in January. They might consider them calculated risks. How people out there listening to this might think about them might vary. Um, And ultimately, I suppose you, you could look back on those and say, well, they got them wrong. Yeah, it's a mixture, isn't it? I think... Like, I don't want to defend bad decisions, uh, but I guess to play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, Gabriel was injured and Thomas Partey was injured. They weren't choices that were that were made True. to not sign players early enough. So Thomas Partey was missing through injury because of a stupid tackle in a preseason game. Um, don't play preseason games against teams that we hate is, is, is my lesson from that. And I would yeah. have said that beforehand anyway. Yeah, playing Tottenham and Chelsea in preseason, maybe you give a little bit of leeway and say it's a bit different because of the pandemic and the usual travelling didn't happen. But like, we're going to play Everton the first game of this preseason. We could learn in two weeks that Everton's the first game of the new Premier League season. Yeah. Do you not think a couple of them players might be tempted to leave a late one in on, I don't know, Bukayo Saka or something? Of course they would. And it's They're Chelsea human. and Orlando as well, isn't it? Right. So, yeah, I mean, I don't understand this. I know I'm sure it makes plenty of money. Commercial. Um, it's a commercial decision. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, yeah, <laughs> I do understand it. Yeah. I just don't agree with it. No, I am yeah. with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I don't understand in terms of what, you know wanting to be a sports team that wins as many games as possible, uh, playing your rivals when you have the choice not to play them. Mm. So, yeah, Everton, you know, sods look, we'll get Everton first game of the season. We'll, we'll be at Chelsea within a couple of weeks after that. And we're playing them both in pre-season. And it just, it's a human, there's got to be that temptation to maybe go in a little bit harder than you would in a, in a regular friendly um, and the game maybe be for a bit more than fitness purposes. 
uh, and, and get an early psychological one over, not injure someone on purpose necessarily, but, you know, get that sort of, get yeah. that idea in someone's head that when they come up against you in a few weeks, they're going to have a rough day. So, yeah. And then if we do get those games, don't, just don't play the important players, not for an hour, like mm. like half an hour, you know, the fitness is important. Um, but yeah, we so we played Chelsea, we missed Gabriel. Um, anyway, we played Chelsea in preseason and lost Thomas Partey. And then COVID hit and left us with Gabriel Martinelli, who had just got off a plane from Japan, uh, Fowler uh, uh, in Balogun up front, and Eddie Nketiah up front, or on the left no, against Eddie, Brentford. Yeah. So... Did Eddie was yeah. no? I think Eddie was injured for Brentford, wasn't he? Or did he play? Oh right, yeah. So that's yeah. yeah. So Balogun started because Eddie was injured, yeah. and, and that meant Martinelli had to start as well. Yeah, my yeah. bad. Um, yeah, so Martinelli started on the left. Uh, Balogun started up front. Martinelli then started up front against Chelsea because Lacazette and, and Aubameyang were still unavailable. Mm. So the, it, the performances were really bad, and signings like Takahiro Tomoyasu could have been made earlier. Aaron Ramsdale could have been made earlier. But I feel like it was a bit of a perfect storm at the start of the season. And I, I'm I'm willing, especially now, having watched the remaining 35 games, I guess you can say, oh, it's really, really annoying because it would have took one win in those games to make all the difference. Mm. But I think I'm willing to look back and say that most of it was bad luck. Okay. All right. Well, look, let's let's not dwell on that because we've been there, done that, worn that T-shirt, and it's not a very nice T-shirt to wear. But you were looking at things from the end of last season, that, that sort of um, – that discussion about whether Arsenal were better in that post-Stevens Day, Boxing Day, as you guys call it, <laughs> uh, run where the second half of the season was better. But people are saying, and understandably so, well, you know – that doesn't offset completely the terrible run that we had in that season. But if you're looking for improvement, if you're looking for a difference in the metrics, for example, if you're looking to see are things that we're doing sustainable, um, was that evidenced more in this season once we got beyond those three games and the team and the personnel were a little more along the lines of, of what Mikel Arteta actually wanted? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we all we can all remember how miserable it was the previous season up to up to Christmas, up to that Boxing Day game against Chelsea when Bukayo Saka got pushed further forward and Emil Smith Rowe came into the team, and we all know how that how that went. Mm. And then Arsenal played, I think, quite good football for a little while, and then continued to play quite good football, but against a bunch of really bad teams. So we all sort of ended the season, and yeah, when I wrote the same piece for the last season, the previous one. Uh, I guess the question at the end of it was, yeah. So, is this Arsenal now? Are we are we a good team or getting towards being a good or a better team again? Mm. Is the attack better? Are we actually looking like we're more likely to score goals? You know, do we do we press higher? Do we keep the ball better? And I mean, basically, the, the, I think this season, if you look look at everything, shots per game, shots conceded, uh, how high we pressed up the pitch how much of our possession came in the final third, that sort of thing, then you can sort of look back and say that that second half of 2020-21, of it wasn't an accident. We weren't winning games and it was just a lucky run of form. We've sort of been on the same run of form for a year and a half now. So mm. that's, for me, that's that question answered. You know, there was a lot of, 
that second half or the first half, if you like, of 2021, there's a lot of, you know, we like to get out the league tables since Boxing Day or the league table since Christmas. And we're, oh, look, we're we're a fourth place team. That's great. Um, and then the next season rolls around and you lose the first three games of the season and everyone goes, nah, we're still rubbish. And <laughs> I, But I think, you know, yeah, you look back now at 38 games and really it's a run of form that's roughly good enough for fourth place. And I mean, we we got quite a few points to not get fourth place. I think where we have finished last season with our points tally, was it fourth or third? Right. I think as many points as Liverpool really for for twenty twenty one with the points that we got in in twenty one twenty two. So this is you know, roughly you're talking about one result, one draw at, at Tottenham or whatever from being from finishing in the top four. Like that's a that's a team that's basically a top four team, right? We didn't finish fourth. But if you're one result away, one bounce of a ball away, then I think we can say, yeah, roll of a dice. You're pretty much a, a top four team and you're definitely a top four contender. And I think that's quite refreshing to see. It's a bitter, bitter disappointment at the end of the season that we it was in our own hands and it felt like it was thrown away. But now we've had a couple of weeks off and you look back and you go, well, we played well for a lot of this season and we played well for a lot of the half season before that. So for a year and a half now, this has been a team that looks like it belongs fourth, maybe, in the Premier League. And I think there's a lot of, of good to take from that. And a team that's not just scraping wins either, not quite to the extent that we were for a while under Mikel Arteta. You think of that cop run. This is a team that's... Mm. you. Know, without quality up front and without scoring enough goals and we all know that but a team that is taking more shots and creating more chances than we have for probably the two or three seasons before this one so does that then lead us you know to is it a natural conclusion do you think that when you you can produce what we've produced consistently with some like fundamentals missing from the team in in uh, periods when, you know, let's say Aubameyang wasn't really at his imperious best, when Lacazette came into the team and stayed in the team too long, despite the fact it was obvious he was just no kind of goal threat anymore. And we can, you know, the Eddie and Keddie thing we've we've talked about and, and everything else. But, like, does that give you more or less hope that when we go into next season, fingers crossed, having filled those gaps with some quality additions to the squad that regardless of what other teams do, because I think, you know, we get to the end of a season and we think, oh, we had the chance to to finish fourth. Next season is going to be much more difficult. Next season will be even harder because everyone else is, is going to improve. Everyone else is going to buy good players in the transfer window and we're going to buy players and they're not, you know. And there's, a, I think, a tendency sometimes to... Uh, is over-index the uh, the phrase du jour? You know, you over-index the quality of uh, of of what some other teams do. I mean, a, a great example of that is the outcry, if you like, at not signing Emi Buendia last season. And everyone was invested in Arsenal bringing in this player and he's going to go to Villa and we're going to regret this and he's going to set the Premier League on fire. And it didn't happen. You know, he's a good player, but... We had our reasons not to go for him. And ultimately, the fear that he would go to Aston Villa and make them some kind of rival for Arsenal was not borne out by what happened during the season. So I do wonder if sometimes we worry 
too much about what the opposition are doing and maybe not quite, uh, don't give quite enough focus on our own potential to improve? Like, do you think there are, t- there are other teams out there who are thinking, well, you know what? Like, look how close Arsenal came to top four without a striker and without their first choice left back for a long time, without their best central midfielder for quite a while at the start of the season, at the end of the season. Like, if they can sort that out and add some players, they must be thinking, well, there's no reason why Arsenal couldn't compete for top four. I'd hope so. Like, when you explain it, it does feel ridiculous, doesn't it, that we we spend all this time worrying about, oh, no, this was the best chance. We'll never have a chance like that again for years. Mm. Like, last summer, we all... Well, I think we all thought Man United would get better. Man United signed a four-time Champions League winning centre-back. They signed the an English prodigy who just ripped up the the German league for a couple of years, and they signed. And then at the end, they signed Cristiano Ronaldo as well. So yeah, I don't think anyone expected them. The Man United team that finished was it second the season before to to drop to sixth, and in the end, be nowhere near us, and, and nowhere near mm. near us and Spurs as we were going for fourth place, and be nowhere near Chelsea, and, and certainly nowhere near the top two. So. Yeah, like it's easy, isn't it? We we see it, and and we're doing the exact same thing now. Like you say, we're looking at Man United have got a new manager. Like, oh no, what, what if he's the one that puts everything together? Like, it's all going to take time there. Even if he is, even if he, he does do a really good job, it's going to take time. They're still going to have to sign, I don't know, an entire midfield and a couple of defenders and mm. probably a couple of other positions as well. So, yeah, the, like there is that element of. We've just got to hope that we do the best thing we can do. If we go and sign three or four great players, but Man United and Chelsea do the exact same thing, and then they beat us to fourth, like everybody will say it's a disappointment, or it will be a disappointment, but everybody will say it's like scandalous or, or whatever that we didn't make fourth. But there's six or seven, if you include Newcastle, in the next couple of years, I'm sure, there are going to be six or seven teams going for four places. Mm. It just won't be that all, all of them can make it. And it also probably won't be fair to say that two or three of those teams did bad work or terrible work just because they were the ones that did miss out on a given year. So I think you can turn around. You can say that it's a disappointment to not finish fourth, but it doesn't mean that Arsenal were bad or that Arsenal were terrible. And Arsenal, I mean, I guess to an extent, shot themselves in the foot. But mm. if if another team, if Chelsea didn't make it, they'd have been talking about when they didn't beat Leicester and when they capitulated at home against us. And, you know, like everybody has games in the season where they'd point to those games and say, oh, that's the one that cost us. You know, we didn't sack the manager early enough or we didn't sign that guy or we did sign that guy and then he let us down. So... I think, yeah, we've just got to focus and hope that we do what we can do. And I think there are two parts to that. I think the first bit is what you said, the positions where you look at the positions and you say, we could be getting a lot more out of that position. Up front's the really obvious one. Yeah. And the other thing is just the squad as a whole and making sure that that one midfielder being missing for what, two months or whatever it might be, or the one left back or right back being missing for a couple of months that it isn't costly. The the guy who comes in, the drop-off isn't as big as it has been. So, you know, we've got to sign players for the first 11, but also players who can compete and, and mm. cover. Not cover as in backups of the very obvious, you're the first choice, you're the second choice. Because we're playing more games, we're playing in Europe. And if we're going to ask Kieran Tierney and Tommy Asu and Thomas Partey to all play 
35, 40, 45, 50 games. Like, they're not going to be able to do it. We've mm. seen with two years of, of party, and tier, or three years of Tierney, two years of party, and now a season of Tomiyasu, at least party and Tierney, I think we can safely say they will not stand the test of playing 45 or 50 games next season. It won't happen. Uh, Tomiyasu, maybe with a summer break, who knows, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't run mm. that risk. I wouldn't sit here and assume that he, he'll be fit to play 45 games next season. And then when the right-back comes in for him and when the left-back comes in for Tierney and whoever comes in for Party, the difference is that we need players where the drop-off in, in quality isn't massive yeah. and doesn't hamstring the team, leave the team as hamstrung as it has not just this season but the season before as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's maybe a discussion for another day, how we deal with those scenarios and how do you realistically cope with you know, a player like Kieran Tierney, who's very obviously our first choice left back, but over whom there are some question marks when it comes to reliability. Um, so I, I think that might be a discussion for another day. Um, you did point to Martin Odegaard as somebody who was key to um, Arsenal's football being better this season. I guess there could be a discussion about him. Like what happens if you get an injury to Martin Odegaard? I know we've got Emile Smith-Rowe, who is, you know, the number 10, Literally, he has that on the back of his shirt. But I think a very different kind of player to uh, to Martin Odegaard. Um, but just to touch on what he did last season and the influence that he had on the team, um, as you lay it out in the article. Yeah, I think it's really obvious sometimes to look at a player like Martin Odegaard, who's so smooth and silky in possession and... You see that, and it, that stuff's obvious. Uh, the game against Brentford, in particular, was that felt like he'd hit some sort of groove, the the, the dummy down the line, mm. and all of that stuff. And it looks great, and it's and it is great. It's great to watch. You know, all of the clips go around on Twitter, and we all get very excited, and it really gets you off the edge of your seat. But I think even more than that, he is the leader of this team when we don't have the ball, when we're when we're behind the ball. At least, obviously, you know crosses coming into the box and stuff, then you're looking at Gabriel and, and Ben White and Tommy Asu to deal with that sort of thing. But when the ball is ahead of us, when the team's building up on the halfway line in possession and looking for a way to come forward, or if they've got the ball at their goalkeeper or their centre-backs, it really is Martin Odegaard who orchestrates and people keep calling him sort of Mikel Arteta's manager on the pitch, if you like. I think it's really obvious to see in those moments where he'll sort of lurk behind a midfielder and then the ball will go back to a centre-back and you'll just see him charge at the centre-back. Like, he's just waiting for the for that right moment to make that run. And then, I guess the difference to when we had it with, say, Alexis Sanchez is he would just go, and it, but it wouldn't be part of an idea or a plan and then he would just turn around exasperated. Yeah. Whereas Martin Odegaard will go, but he'll be pointing at Bakaya Saka where to be while he's running, while he's chasing the centre-back and getting himself into position. Or he'll be turning around, and you see little looks over the shoulder at, you know, is Granit Xhaka backing me up on this side? Is, is Thomas Partey where he should be on this side? And there's a couple of examples in the article that I used. Um, one that I just saw during the game when we were playing Leicester, uh, away from home way back in it's October and uh, the ball had gone to I think Schmeichel had the ball and the Leicester left back was in space and, and Saka had sort of pushed up to press the centre back and 
Odegaard just sort of waves, like really nonchalantly waves an arm back at him. He just like flicks his hand, like, no, like get back there. And, and Saka you know, turns around and the ball goes out there and, and he intercepts it as, as Schmeichel's looked to play that out ball to the left back. And, and that gap was just too big. Mm. And Odegaard's the one, you know, not just taking care of his own positioning, but making sure that everybody else is following it up as well. And, and there's another example that I used, I think, from the game against Man United, where he did the complete opposite, where he was the guy pressing in midfield and the, and the ball went back to the centre-back and he's running. And as he's running to the centre-back, he's sort of looking again over that shoulder and flicking his hand the other way, urging Saka to, to get up and get on the left-back before the ball goes out to him. So really, I think to make Arsenal harder to play through is one thing, but to make sure that we can win the ball high up the pitch is obviously a, a mm. massive addition as well. I think when we talk specifically about not being able to come back in games when we've gone behind. I think that ability to box teams in is crucial to improving in that. I think you look at, just imagine Liverpool and City when we play against, and I know you always want to compare to those two, but who better to learn from than the two teams who dominate games best? I think Liverpool and City, whenever we've played them and it's nil-nil or maybe we've got a goal, we've had a couple of chances and you feel like they they know they need to score, it becomes impossible to get out of your own half. And I think that more than anything would solve our problem coming from behind in games. That and, that and a, a new centre-forward, obviously. Well, yeah, an, an addition of quality. And I think what, what's interesting when you think about Gabriel Jesus as a potential arrival is the is the way that he presses from the front. And that sort of coordination with somebody like Martin Odegaard um, would be really fun to watch, I think. There's something, it's something Tim, Tim Stillman said for years that, you know, that in Brazil and, and Chich, the Brazilian, the Brazilian manager, like Gabriel Jesus gets picked all the time up front for Brazil. And people, I remember the last, the last World Cup and everyone's like, oh, why is it not Firmino? Like Liverpool have been brilliant. And the reason always given was that Gabriel Jesus against the ball was like, I think Guardiola's called him the best striker in the world. He likes to exaggerate, as we know. Um, but he's, yeah, he's so, so good <laughs> when he's when he's pressing and getting high and getting... But it, it's all about timing. And I think there is a real... People think sometimes that pressing's about working hard, but I think there's such an understanding of space and when to do it and when not to do it and making sure that you don't leave a gap behind you when you do do it. So that's the stuff that Odegaard's great at. And you're right, Gabriel Jesus, the way that his managers talk about him, I think would add something to that as well. And like I say, I think when you can then box teams in and you're chasing a goal, it becomes not about that one attack, but waves of attacks and, and sustained pressure. And that's how you break teams down more often than not. You know, Both teams that are sitting back because they're trying to hold on for a draw and teams that are sitting back because they've got a lead against you. If you can do that, then it makes life so much easier that you you know keep an attack going for five, six, seven, eight minutes and the ball's really in their half or their third and they're mm. penned in. And I think that's something that, for me, next season, you're looking for ways for Arsenal to improve. That's something I wanted to see a hell of a lot more of. Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, the final point that you make in the article, which is, you know, coming from behind is a, a significant issue. Um, when we go ahead, we do well. When we go behind, we don't. And uh, I, I do think there's an element of psychology to it as well, but also simply quality in terms of uh, the kind of personnel that we have uh, on the pitch. Um, but look, I will urge people to go and have a read of that. There's some good stuff in there. I want to move on to um, 
a really great thread that was um, I, I wrote about during the week on the blog, and I'm sure many people will have seen it from uh, John Byrne Murdoch of the uh, Financial Times. And it's about the growing disparity between the Premier League and even within the Premier League itself because of the finances within the game and, and this sort of myth of competitiveness, if you like, that exists. Um I mean, do you worry that – I mean, look, let's look at it from the point of view of the transfer market because that's the thing we're all invested in at this moment in time. Nobody gives two shits right now about who the three English teams are going to be in next season's Champions League finals once one of them isn't uh, Tottenham, of course, right? Um, but when it comes to the transfer market, this financial gap that is growing and growing and growing between the Premier League and European leagues – it's great for players if you're coming to the Premier League. It's fantastic because you're going to join a club, you're going to get big wages, you're going to earn big money, and it's all hunky-dory. Good for you, good for your agent, good for your management team, good for your hangers-on, good for your entourage, all of that kind of stuff. And if you're a club like Arsenal that's got five or six or seven, maybe eight players that they want to move on this summer, it's not so good because you've got players on relatively big wages who... I guess if they want to play are, are going to have to face up to the fact that they're not going to get the same kind of wage at a European club um, than they are in the Premier League. So they're, you know, aware that that's going to happen. But it makes it more difficult to sell players because potential money that would go to the fee now has to go maybe to the player to give them the transfer or, you know, the bump in signing on fee to offset the the, the cut in wages. Uh, so that that aspect of it makes it very difficult for Arsenal this summer, and we've myself and James went through it on on Monday on the Arscast Extra. All the players that we have to sell, um, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of time watching Borussia Dortmund, and you're well up in uh, on the Bundesliga, um, you know, it's twenty was twenty twelve the last time that a club apart from Bayern Munich won. The Bundesliga, and that was yeah, Jurgen, yeah. that was Jurgen Klopp in charge of Borussia Dortmund. And were it not for Jurgen Klopp being in charge of Liverpool right now, we'd be sitting here talking about Man City winning five, six in a row, whatever it is. So, is this something that that worries you? Is this you know the the stable doors are open and the horse is well and truly bolted? Is there any way of getting the horse back, or maybe we just have to shoot the horse? <laughs> yeah take the horse down yeah um i think that there are ways that this could change and that nobody in charge of anywhere will ever make an effort to to make those things out you know, be it fifa or uefa or the leagues or anyone at the clubs um i don't think there's any interest in weakening their own hand if you like yeah. i mean like you know if you want to if you want to keep germany as an example uh, Bayern Munich make a hell of a lot more from the, the TV money than everybody else in the league. And some of Bayern Munich's own fans have asked for that money to be split equally. And it isn't. Um, and, and Bayern Munich are not in favour, for obvious reasons, sure. uh, of, of that happening. So I have, uh, I saw it the other day. This I think it's from the previous season, from like 2020-21. So not the season that's just ended. Um, and... 20% or 19% of the the international TV money coming into the Bundesliga went to Bayern Munich. Uh, Bayern Munich got 45 million euros. 
the the bottom teams in the league. I think it was three promoted teams that year. It might be it might be from twenty nineteen twenty. Um, I think it was three promoted teams that year, and they got about three and a half million euros each from the for, for that season right. from the international TV rights. How is this ever going to change? When so that's just one example. You know, you have the same stuff going on with UEFA money from UEFA competitions and, and things like that. So, how is this ever going to change if the the money is divided? Like, but Bayern Munich are already, you know, like the top clubs in England. I guess it's a bit more drastic because there's there's one team in Germany that's dominating like that, and then Dortmund are sort of a lot nowhere near as rich as Bayern, and then the gap between Bayern and Dortmund. Is a, there's a similar gap after Dortmund, and then there's everybody else in Germany, right? Uh, more or less is a, a sort of a basic way of looking at it. So for that season, Bayern Munich got 45 million euros uh, the t- the international TV money. Dortmund got 32 million euros. Uh, Schalke and, and Leverkusen, who I think were both in Europe that year in the Champions League, have got about 25 million euros each. And then you're looking at 17, and then 14, and then all the way down to three million euros at the bottom of the league table. I don't think the clubs at the top, you know, firstly, they have an enormous financial advantage over everybody as it is. Yeah. And then by being, by virtue of being at the top of the league and being the teams with international audiences, being the teams that are in Europe and then go furthest in Europe as well, it just consolidates the gap and, the, and that gap just grows and grows and grows. I mean, we just seen Frankfurt win the Europa League. Uh, two years ago, when we beat, uh, played Chelsea in the Europa League final, Frankfurt made the semi-final. They they lost to Chelsea. Frankfurt's record signing is like 12, 13, 14 million pounds. Like the the clubs just do not have this money. And mm. if we look beyond the, the top few clubs, Fiorentina are back in Europe, and they're not going to sign Lucas Torreira for what was it, the fifteen million euros? Yeah. Uh, a clause that they had to buy him permanently on his loan. He got, I think I saw Charles Watts towards the end of the season say he got player of the month for Fiorentina three times during the season and they won't part with 15 million euros so that we can get rid of him. Yeah. So yeah, you've got, you've got England where the team, the poorest teams in the Premier League are richer than everyone in France and in Germany and in Italy outside of like the Champions League clubs. So you know, what are we left with? We're left with a situation, I guess, where you've got two or three clubs at most in, in all these European countries who completely financially dominate the league. And then you've got mid-table Premier League teams who can compete with most of those. And then Premier League teams who are way richer at the top than even Real Madrid and Barcelona and Bayern Munich themselves. It's, yeah. You know, it is supposed to be sport, and I know we say, well, football's a business and football's entertainment, but it is supposed to be sport and sport is supposed to be competitive. There's always going to be levels, of course. There are always going to be clubs that are richer than other clubs and that's that's been borne out over the years as well. Um, but I thought this was interesting. Sorry, go on. No, I, I was just going to say to that, like, you know, you talk about it being sport and stuff and even, well, I mean, the, the Premier League really kicked this off and, and it became impossible to use to see teams regularly in the, the 70s and the 80s sort of get promoted from the second tier and compete for the title in Division One like straight away. And how rare was it that a team won the double? And now we've got a situation where every single year we are going to be talking about an English club going for a quadruple. And I know it's not happened yet, yeah. uh, but it was, well, it was what? about one 
it, it was two goals away from happening. Or one goal, uh, yeah, yeah. And, this, you know, this season. Yeah. With, you know, Man City with their riches, especially Newcastle won't be far behind within the next few years, I'm sure. It used to be so, so mental that a team won the double. Um, and now we're in a situation where every single season we're going to be talking about a quadruple. So it's... It's a bit mad um, and it's a massive shame, I think. Yeah, I mean, and you know what's weird? I, I said this, um, I think I said this on the blog, I said this to James anyway on WhatsApp. It's like, you know, maybe part of the the pain of missing out on the Champions League is because, like, at least in a cup competition, there is the potential for some variance or for something to sort of sweep you along the way. I mean, look at what Real Madrid did. Obviously, they're a huge club. They've got amazing players. But is it not the essence of club of cup football to win games the way they won those games and to come back from these positions where you go, well, they're they're done. It's over. Let's, you know, two minutes to go. Man City we- versus Liverpool in the Champions League final. And then all of a sudden, it's like, Holy shit. Like, and that I think is like, it sounds ridiculous given that we have never won it. But I would suggest potentially that Arsenal, if they were to get in the Champions League, have got a better chance of winning that than winning the Premier League in the near future, given what we're competing against and given what we could be competing against. You know, when let's say Newcastle really start to establish themselves, given the, the vast amounts of money that they're going to be able to spend. Um, you know, it's it's kind of mad. I think I think you might be right. You look at the Premier League now; like it takes over ninety points every single season now to win the Premier League. And a hundred um, goals, ninety and a hundred goals. That's what Mikel Arteta he said it, didn't he? Um, during the season, we we need to score ninety, a hundred goals, and everyone's like, "Yeah, right." You know, if we're going to do that, and look, goal scoring is a problem. But you know, he's absolutely right. We have to score. If we if we if we want to be even close to that, we're going to have to score ninety or a hundred goals, and that's which you don't have to do in the Champions League. Like I think I do think you might be right. Look at that. Uh, you know, when the pandemic started and we finished eighth, and guess what? We beat Liverpool. We were really lucky. We were yeah. rubbish, yeah. and they made a couple of massive mistakes, and we beat Liverpool. And I think they'd won the league a few days before. So yeah, great. There we go. That's a. Uh, Oh, oh, look, we still finished eighth. Then we played well twice. We played well against Man City. We defended. It was you know, probably not super dissimilar to the way Real Madrid just won the Champions League final in that FA Cup semi-final against Man mm. City. We defended, we broke, and we took our chance. And, you know, to a lesser extent, I think that the final, I think the final was more or less an even performance between us and Chelsea, but there were there were shades of it. And there's no doubt that over the course of the season, Chelsea were a much better side than us. So you're right. In a cup competition, you just need that to break for you a couple of times. Mm. In the league, well, you can't have a bad month in the Premier League and still win it anymore. You know, we, no. we, we used to compete with, with United for the title and it had probably low 80s would be roughly the benchmark to win the title, low to mid 80s. If you got 90 points, you would definitely walk in with, away with the with the trophy. Yeah. Not anymore. Um, not anymore. If you get 90 points now, City will get 94 and, and Liverpool will get 92 and you won't even finish in the top two. So it's, yeah, it's very different. And I think it, it does lose a bit of, you know, everyone, they marketed the Premier League on everyone can beat everyone. And now there are two teams that nobody can touch. It's. It, I think it's a massive shame. Like as a football fan, it's a massive loss. And I don't personally. I don't get much out of these title races as a, you know, watching as a neutral. 
where there's like no jeopardy. It's like the team that's ahead <laughs> at the start of March will be ahead at the end of the season because yeah. they'll just win every single game. I mean, it's ridiculous. Liverpool score got 51 points from 57 in 2022. You know, I think they dropped six points in the entire calendar year and didn't win the title with 92 points, you know, scoring 94 goals. I know there'll be people who say, well, you know, it was Arsenal and Manchester United for a while. They were the only two teams in the race. But, you know, I think what you have to look at back then is that it wasn't as artificial, maybe. I mean, I'm not saying Liverpool are pure. Clearly, they've invested a lot of money. They've spent a lot of money on players. They've generated well and everything else. So they've spent hundreds of millions and there's no question about that what man city do is on a different level and you know i'm not here to talk about that again but when it was arsenal when it was manchester united united were rich super rich they were the biggest club in england but what they 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 spent what they had they spent what they generated because they were super smart early on to exploit the commercial aspect of the club which nobody else was really doing you could get your manchester united fucking tea cozies and all that before for anybody any other club even had t-shirts you know that kind of way and what arsenal were was a, a a team with an amazing manager he put together an incredible um couple of teams to compete with those and it was on a very fundamental sporting level it was brilliant, but it was also something that other clubs could have done. Like Liverpool were a big club at that time. They were floundering or floundering away. But, you know, it wasn't beyond the realms of possibility that Liverpool could have done what Arsenal did. I mean, they tried with, with Gerard Ullier, um, you know, to, to go down that, that same kind of route. Whereas now, you know, maybe Liverpool will drop away. Um, and if they do, City will just get further ahead because of what they have and what they can do and it feels almost impossible to to try uh, to try and catch that if you know what i mean yeah i think there's also just a like a professionality and a ruthlessness um and you I, like i don't blame anybody for that but it makes the financial difference mean everything mm. i think it i think it happened in england i think it i mean to go back i think it happened in germany in in 2012 and as you say dortmund there was like a Everything went wrong for Bayern Munich. Uh, you know, they lost the Champions League final in their own stadium. They lost. Bastards. Bayern were used to teams winning occasional league titles, uh, but they lost a, a consecutive league title to the same club, which hadn't happened for a very, very long time in Germany either. And then they lost the cup final to that same club, and they let in five goals, and they were humiliated. And all of that all culminating at once. I think Bayern Munich basically turned around and went that's never happening again and took themselves a lot more seriously. The old style scouting went out the window, you know, the, Oh, this guy scored against us once. Let's spend 10 million on him. Like this stuff that you used to see in the eighties and the nineties, like that stuff went completely. And then it was smart. And well, it was fine, smart. Think, it was like, but, uh, look at, look at our closest rivals. They've got some good players. Yeah. Let's buy them. That's, that's also true. Like the, the ruthlessness yeah. there, but also the money, like Bayern had never used their financial advantage to the extent that they could have. I think there was a moral superiority, like, oh, we're not going to buy the league. And they went and, you know, the, they decided midfield was the biggest problem. And they went and spent a, a club record at the time, like 35 million on, on Javi Martinez to play holding midfield. And it was like by far the club record on a holding midfielder. Who does that? So they turned around and they were like, this is never happening. Right, we've got the money. 
right, we're just going to spend it now. And that's that. This is never happening again. And well, they've gone and won 10 league titles in a row. I think England's moment, and I say England's and not a specific club because I think it happened collectively, was Leicester winning the league. And I think that was humiliating for United, for Chelsea, for City, for, for Liverpool, Arsenal and Tottenham as well. And everybody, clubs went and got new managers. I think Liverpool had went and got Klopp, I think, just after that. I might be getting that wrong. I think they, maybe it was, it was Klopp had already been there for, for seven or eight months, possibly. Um, you know, the club's invested so much more. Guardiola arrived and it was like, we are never letting that happen again. Chelsea mm. went and got Antonio Conte and won the league. And I really think that was a watershed moment where the clubs had already had this pull and this financial advantage but they maybe needed something to force them into you know, being like, sort of the bad guy and being that that completely ruthless streak. Right? What are Leicester? How can Leicester possibly win the league? Right? Well, they're obviously scouting where we aren't. They're obviously doing this or doing this. So teams develop tactically. You know, Tottenham made a Champions League final off the back of it. Chelsea appointed Conte and won the league straight away with a back three that no one in England played a back three at the time. Guardiola arrived and Guardiola and Klopp have, have just gone on to new levels in, in terms of English football, domestic football anyway, over the past, what is it, six years since then. And I think that was the moment for English football. Like There was no turning back after that. It yeah. was the teams with the most money also got smart instead before I think it was sort of sort of like Man United have actually been wrong the last few years. Ah, well, we've got all this money. We don't need to be smart. I think the, the top teams outside of Man United decided that that was enough and they weren't ever going to let a humiliation like that happen yeah. again. Unfortunately, we all want to see humiliations like that. We want to see someone just be smart and do good transfers and have maybe a, a crazy run of form that no one expected. And it means they're in the run-in for fourth or maybe an outside shot at the title race. Unfortunately, I just think that era is is, is gone. And uh, it, it will only, as far as I'm concerned, it will only get worse. The, the money that's at the top of the game, you know, the money that goes to teams that are in the Champions League and the, the division of TV money and all that sort of thing. It means... Sure, the, the clubs at the bottom of the Premier League are getting loads of money as well, but the gap between them and, and the rich just grows and grows and grows. That's before you even talk about the yeah. nation-state ownerships. Well, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting. You know, that, that's, I think that's a really interesting theory. And like talking about Bayern buying from Dortmund, you know, what was one of the first things Chelsea did was take one of Leicester's best players in N'Golo Conte and, mm. you know, hobble them to an extent because you are... You might be the ch uh, the champions, but you're a small team, and we will take what we want from you. And I think there's there was an interesting um, stat in in John Byrne Murdoch's uh, thread where he said, uh, "50 years ago, the best and worst team in the English league in the English top tier were separated by 30 points and 52 goals. Today, 71 points and 134 goals." And he's taken into account, obviously, the three points for a win scenario and, and everything else mm. in that. So it just shows you that the gulf between the top and the very bottom, even in England, um, even if the money is relatively uh, similar, um, you know, is huge. And let's not forget that the big six, if you want to call them the big six, I don't know if you can call them that anymore, we're, we're pushing for, you know, greater representation from the um, from the 
the international money rights because, you know, they're the star power, they're the draw, they're the ones that drive subscriptions, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I get it if you're looking for your club to be ruthless or whatever, but if you're looking for sport to be sporting, you know, it just goes to, uh, to widen the gap. But look, I just want to finish on, on one thing because we've, um, we've talked about transfers and I think there might be a discussion about how if it's difficult to sell to European clubs, it should be easier to buy from them. But uh, I feel like we're running out of time. We could maybe do that another day. But uh, today, a story, Alexandra Lacazette um, is going to rejoin Leon. it seems, five years after joining Arsenal for £50 million. Um, how do you view that transfer in the cold light of day, five years down the line, he came for £50 million. He's leaving for nothing. Um, maybe going back to what Arsene Wenger said about this is what players are going to do. They're going to wind their, they're going to wind their deals down. Um, how would you assess his time at Arsenal? Um, I mean, to me, a likable guy, but considering the outlay and what I thought we might get from him, pretty disappointing. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much sums it up. Um, I wouldn't look personally, like you say. I think he seems like a nice guy, uh, and also in to his favour, never down tools, worked hard. Looks like he's been a great example for the younger players this season when we've gone we've pivoted and had that really young lineup. Mm. But if you're breaking your transfer record for a striker, it needs to be a striker that's scoring a lot of goals and and I think basically that's what it comes down to for me to for the club to spend a record fee on a striker and then five months later spend another record fee on another striker just tells you that quite quickly they decided they hadn't done the right thing Mm. and then in the four and a half years since I don't think there's been too much that would have you change your mind on that so I don't think he's ever scored more than 15 in a Premier League season. Mm. I mean, we're talking about as well, you know, we talk about what football used to be like and the number of goals that used to be scored. And you know, 15, 20 years ago, for a striker, maybe not playing for a top team, maybe you'd expect a few more, but one in two felt like a, a fair return, like a good return, a solid return for a striker. A club like Arsenal spending 50 million, record 50 million fee on a striker six year, uh, five years ago, you'd expect more than 15 league goals. I don't think he ever broke 20 in an, in all competitions in a season. It's, yeah, it, I don't think it's quite what anyone had hoped for when we did sign him. And especially after this season and the, the number of goals that he scored, mm. I don't think there'll be too many people you know, missing him or saying we definitely should have given him a new deal or anything like that. So unfortunately, yeah, it, it won't be one that goes down as a success. It's one of those, wasn't it? Because he was a player that was linked to us like season after season, summer after summer. And Arsene Wenger never seemed convinced. And he was always looking for a striker. Because when you look back down the years, Arsene Wenger was always after a striker. Benzema, Higuain, Jamie Vardy. I'm sure there's another one or two that I'm forgetting who were, you know, on the list and that we were trying hard to bring Luis in. Luis Suarez, obviously. Luis Suarez, yeah, of course. Um, you know, so he was always on the lookout for a new striker and somebody who could get more goals into the team. And 
and, and it cost us, I mean, cost, like, you know, he, he divided opinion himself, but it, it meant it really pushed Olivier Giroud out the door in the end. Yeah. And I think now if you look back over the last five years, he's contributed more to the teams that he's played for probably than, than Lacazette has to us. He's won, I think, an FA Cup. He's won the Champions League. He's won the Europa League, as we know. Yeah. He's won the World Cup. Um, and, and he's just helped Milan win Serie A for the first time in... A decade as well, so yeah. I, 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 I'm not here saying that we would have won loads of stuff with with Giroud still playing up front, but I think we'd spent fifty million pounds and we didn't get more out of Lacazette than we were getting or would have continued to get out of Giroud anyway. I think that's it. It's like he was brought in as nominally an upgrade on Olivier Giroud, and I don't think he well, was. You don't you don't break your transfer record and yeah. then start playing a new guy up front unless you think he's going to yeah. be a lot better for the team than the guy that, he, that he's replacing. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess it's it's sort of emblematic of the, the muddled thinking that we had when it came to recruitment towards the end of the uh, the Arsene Wenger reign. Um, look, I, again, I, I think he's a nice guy and I had no doubts about his professionalism. If Sometimes I did worry a bit about his fitness and what have you, his ability to last... Um, but he's going back to Leon. Best of luck to him. Um, and we'll see what Arsenal do, obviously, in the transfer market this summer to replace him. Um, I think we all have a good idea of what we want to do. Uh, whether we can do it or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But look, we better leave it there for now, though. Lewis, thank you very much as always. Cheers. Thank you, Andrew. Have a good weekend. You too. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you very much indeed to Lewis. You can find him on Twitter at LG Ambrose, at LG Ambrose. And you will find links to the article that he wrote on arsblog.com and the thread that we reference in the show notes. So check your app or, or just check the website. You'll find that right there. So that is just about that uh, for this week's show. As ever, thank you very much indeed for listening. Really appreciate it. James and I will be here on Monday. Just to give you a heads up on that, though, 
We are recording later on Monday than usual. It'll probably be Monday afternoon slash Monday evening before we can record. So bear that in mind. Um, Forewarned is forearmed and all that kind of stuff. So we will have the Arsecast Extra for you on Monday, but it will be late. We'll also have some uh, waffle on Patreon as well if you want to join in on that. That is the podcast where James and I talk about anything and everything except Arsenal will have that for Patreon subscribers next week as well. For now, though, have yourselves a great weekend. Whatever you get up to, have fun, look after yourselves, and I will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Brenda, do you remember the good old days? Oh, the good old days. Do I remember them? I remember them like they was yesterday. Let me tell you, they weren't just the good old days. They were the great old days. It was brilliant. Season after season after season. Oh, it was great. The quality was just, oh, it was off the charts. Off the charts. The things I, I experienced, I can't even begin to tell you what they were like. But my goodness, those were the good old days. All right, you get to the end of a podcast and you get a really good end bit. Now, all the big podcasts have bought up all the best 10 bits and you're left with shit like this. I don't even know why we bother going on, Jimmy. Brenda? Yeah? Can we put on Holy God FM? Oh, I wish we could, but Rupert fucking Murdoch bought it, didn't he? Wanker. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 